Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to come into your presence and to worship you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for your scriptures, which are timeless and inspired by you for our instruction. So as we look at these events from uh, the book of Judges, help us realize how relevant this is to our lives and situation today. And help us to see uh, you, Jesus Christ, because all scripture points to you. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, as you heard, we are starting a new uh, study for the summer, and Pastor Nick and myself will be preaching through the book of Judges. I'm looking forward to this. I'm excited about it for a few reasons. Uh, One, the book of Judges is just an action-packed book, and there are some just colorful stories in here. That's something you might remember from Sunday school. I don't know the last time you've read through Judges. I hope it hasn't been too long. But there might be times where we hit details and you say, well, I didn't realize that was in there. There's a little more to the story than I thought. And some things where you may say, that's in the Bible? Wow, that has my attention. So the book of Judges, I, I love it uh, for that purpose. But also, even though this is some, these are events that happened over 3,000 years ago, I think in a totally a different time, a different land, a different culture, I think you will be amazed about how relevant this is to America today in many, many ways. And I think one of the uh, reasons, what we'll do, we're going to start in chapter 1 of Judges, and I hope you bring your scripture. I, I would encourage you to have it open. I think there's advantages to having a paper version if you can, because you can see the whole thing. But for now, before we even get started, turn to the end of Judges. Judges, by the way, is the seventh book of the Old Testament. There's something we need to see from, from the beginning is how it ends. The very last verse of the very last chapter in the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, says, In those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right. That's great. This sounds like a good time, Uh, except I didn't read uh, the last four words. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is the characteristic of this time period. There's no king. Everyone did what was right according to what they thought was right, with them being the, the determiner of what is right in their own eyes. And I'm sure you've realized that usually how that's going to translate is everyone does what they want to do. And they find a way in their eyes to make that the right thing. We have this amazing ability as as fallen human beings to have any crazy thing we want and to be able to justify it in our eyes and say we're right and to follow our own way. And we're going to see when a society lives this way, it leads to some dark, dark times. Now, if you're thinking, well, that has nothing to do with America today, well, <laughs> and there's laughter because, of course, I mean, one thing that obviously probably comes to mind, you know, right now there's all these controversies with, um, with bathrooms and uh, people from, from the Oval Office you know, saying that, uh, that anatomical males, if they feel, if it's right in their own eyes, should be able to use a lady's restroom or a, a girl's restroom in school, or wherever you go. Because if that's right in their eyes, they should be allowed to do that. Let me give you just another, 
this is something I saw this week. And this apparently is something that seemed like a good idea to this person. Uh, but there was an article in New Yorker magazine about somebody that decided he was, he was sick of uh, just the stress in this world. And I thought, wouldn't it be so much nicer to just live like an animal? And so he decided, after thinking this through, he wanted to live as a goat. So this person went and he had prosthetics made and went out to live among the goats and to sleep there. And this seemed, in his eyes, like a, just a great idea. I, mean, I won't tell you too much about eating grass, okay? Uh, <laughs> he went on to say that he realized that goats have multiple chambers in their, in their stomach. So he concocted something where he would chew the grass and spit it into a bag full of enzymes and then slurp it up. Because in his eyes, it seemed like a great idea to live among the goats. Now you may say, well, that just affects this, this guy. Let me give you a statement that was written by our Supreme Court justices um, in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision. One justice wrote, at the heart of liberty, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. That's the heart of liberty, is to do what's right in your own eyes. Hmm. So we're going to see many reasons why the book of Judges is so appropriate to today. We're going to get into this. What we're going to do, instead of, we have a big passage of scripture to go through today, and rather than reading it all at once, we'll read it as we go through this. We may not be able to read each part. Um, I encourage you to be reading uh, anything that we need to skip over uh, at, at home. But we're going to divide this into a few sections here. And the first that we're going to say, the uh, first 20 verses, is dealing with the continuing conquest and that Israel was commanded to completely drive out the Canaanites. So let's start reading. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Okay, let's stop right there. This gives us some context as far as where we're at. It's important to locate the book of Judges in the biblical storyline. Like we said, this is the seventh book of Scripture. And I'm going to give you a, a one-minute summary of Scripture up to this point. Okay? In the beginning, God creates the world. He creates Adam and Eve. Everything is good. Everything is ideal. There is uh, no sin in, in the, God's creation. Adam and Eve rebel, and the world becomes fallen. It becomes a mess. But God promises one day he's going to, uh, he's going to send a redeemer. And then there's this person named Abraham, and God comes to him and tells him, he makes a covenant with him, and says that even though he is, he is an old man, his wife is, is old, and they have no children, he says he's going to make his offspring into a great nation and gives him this as a firm, uh, unconditional promise that he gives to, to Abraham. And so Abraham believes God, even though it seems silly, and God starts the process of fulfilling this. Now, if you're going to make a, a great nation, you need at least three different things. You need people, law, and land. And so if you look at Scripture from then on, it's this process of supplying each of these things. So God does give Abraham and Sarah an offspring, 
and they have children. And at the end of the book of Genesis, 70 of them, that's how many there are of his offspring at that point, they go down into Egypt. And they're, in a sense, protected there, although they end up in slavery. And by the time the book of Exodus starts, you have, they've multiplied greatly, so much that when Moses leads them out of Egypt, out of slavery, it records that there is uh, 600,000 men. Now that's probably the men over the age of 20 that uh, were able to fight. So if you include everyone, now there's, there's probably about 2 million, give or take. That's a rough estimate. So if you need people, law and land, now you have people. Then you read in Exodus through Deuteronomy, and God is giving his, his Old Testament law to them. And there's, there's aspects of this as far as the Ten Commandments, but other commands too that say reflect God's moral character. There's aspects that deal with the sacrifices that foreshadow the coming Christ. There's civil laws to govern the nation. So by the end of Deuteronomy, uh, which literally means second giving of the law, it, they have now people and they have a law. So the last thing they're missing is the land. And so God had promised to Abraham uh, the, the promised land. That's why we call it the promised land, that they needed to go in and they needed to, uh, to conquer this. Uh, it's what now is Israel. It was known as Canaan, and at the time the Canaanites lived there. And the Canaanites, for hundreds of years, had been extremely wicked. We don't have time this morning to, to give you examples of how wicked they were, but believe me, wicked, wicked, wicked. And they were commanded to go in and to drive out, completely drive out the Canaanites and to conquer. So the book of Joshua, after Moses dies, they, they enter the land and they begin the conquest. And the book of Joshua is this book of this military history of them taking over key cities and beginning this conquest. But that was kind of the, the initial blitz. And after this, where we are in Judges here, it says Joshua has died, and they've conquered a lot of the key cities, but there's a, still a lot to do. There's still a lot of Canaanites in the, the land and in different places, and they have, to, they have to finish the process. So you have kind of this boundary event here with uh, the death of their, their great leader, Joshua, who was a very good guy, a very faithful leader. So they're commanded to drive out the Canaanites. God knew they wouldn't be able to stand up to the temptation that they would provide. Uh, and so he tells them to go in. Verse 2, the Lord said to Judah, the Lord said, Judah shall go up and behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Okay, let me pause again. So there were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, and so God selected Judah as the one to go up first. Now there's a question here, and some different commentators that I've read have different opinions on this. What Judah did here, how much of this was obedience and how much was, was there disobedience? And some look at this and say, well, he was being obedient. Now, it said for Judah to do this. It didn't say anything about getting help from, uh, from Simeon. 
Um, but he asked Simeon to go along, another tribe, and they, they go and do this together. Was this a mark of disobedience because Judah should have done it just on his own? Or was this a mark that you have still some unity uh, within the tribe of Israel and this is an okay thing? And this is a good time for us to talk about this. One of the things that we are going to notice in the book of Judges, and this is a frustrating thing, but it's really important for us to get, is that oftentimes we are not going to be told exactly if something was how it was supposed to be or not. We're not going to be told, even with some of these great heroes, if every action that they did, if this is an example we're supposed to follow, or if this was sin and something we're not supposed to do, and we're going to see oftentimes it's probably a blend of these uh, different things because uh, life is messy like that and it is for us as well too. So I think that's really important even as we look at these characters, as we look at you know, Barak and Gideon and Jephthah and, and Samson, we are going to see that they are incredibly flawed leaders. Just incredibly. And as we go through Judges, it's, it's going to get progressively worse. Okay. You have, um, you have uh, Barak, who was, he was a coward. Okay, you have Gideon, who had some questionable practices in uh, knowing the, the will of God and, and trust. And by the end of his life, he basically leads people into idolatry. You have Jephthah, who makes a foolish vow and ends up sacrificing his daughter because of it. And you have Samson, who was a, basically a womanizing thug. He was a complete knucklehead. And it goes from, it goes from, it starts okay and it just gets progressively worse. And then there's the last five chapters which don't get preached on much and I'm still going to try and get through that. And it's dark, dark times. Almost where it's going to make America seem like not so, <laughs> like America might seem okay by comparison. Okay? These were dark, dark times. And it just gets worse. So we have to realize not every event in Judges is an example to follow. And that's a good principle for scripture anyways, that when there's a narrative that's given a story, you have to interpret that by the other passages, by the, the parts that give the teachings, that give the law, so that you can know if, if was this a good example or was it not. And like I said, there's going to be frustrations. And even times where it looks like God is blessing some of these guys in the midst of them doing some sin. I mean, there's a story that we're going to see in, for Samson, and this will be at the end of summer, but where he is visiting a prostitute and the people are waiting for him and later he comes out and by the Spirit of God is able to uh, lift up the gates of the city and drag him up the hill. And it seems like on one hand, okay, the Spirit of God is with him and blesses him with this. He was, he was visiting a prostitute. And I don't think they were doing a Bible study together. <laughs> so even when there's success, even when there seems to be outward blessing, don't think that that's approval. So that's going to be a question we're going to have to struggle through and, uh, as we look at this. So here we see, first of all, they had this, this first conquest. Simeon goes with them. And it says, And Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men. We just read that. And then they captured the king. And it says, They found Adonai Bezek at, at Bezek. His name basically means the Lord of Bezek and fought against them and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him. And here's where it's one of those colorful stories. 
and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, what is this all about? This was a practice that oftentimes they would do in those days to humiliate a captured king. Uh, if you do this to them, you've basically disarmed them. They're not going to be holding a sword. They're not going to be running away from you and capture them uh, in this way. Um, it also, so this happened to him, and I think probably the thoughts that went through his mind is he realized, there go my dreams of being a hitchhiking ballerina. But actually what he did say, he says, and Adonai Bezik said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so has God repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So this was something that from our perspective seems cruel and unusual punishment. But we have to remember the culture of the day, this guy had done this to 70 other kings. Remember the Old Testament, it gives the stipulation that you know, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And to us that may seem cruel, but at the time that was, given, that was limiting the retribution that would come. So it wasn't like, well, we're going to one-up you and give, uh, you know, you did this terrible thing and we're going to do it ten times back to you. It was, it was to limit this. And I know our society has a problem with retributi- uh, retribution and punishment, uh, but there's things in Scripture now, again, it doesn't say exactly what they should have done or not, but um, it was a different time, and we see a glimpse here of just the extreme wickedness that this man had. Let me give you two principles from this so far. I think one, and I'll explain this, is that there may be something that God has promised to give you, but you still need to fight for it. You may still have to fight for what God gives you. Because notice back in verses 1 and 2, Okay? It says here, both on one hand, it says, um, well, verse 2, Judah shall go up, and behold, I have given the land into his hand. God is promising he's going to make this happen. He's going to give the land into his hand. But he still had to fight for it. Now, let me be clear. Our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Christ did it all. But there are so many things in Scripture that we need to realize that God is going to empower us to do it. He's going to give us the grace. He's going to make it happen. But there's still a fight and a struggle involved. He's going to work through us to do what we need to do. But there's still things that are on our part that we need to do. You know, if you are fighting with temptation over sin, God wants to help you. There are promises, but there's still a fight that you need to undergo. God wants to be with you in your marriage raising your children to know and to fear him. But there's still going to be a struggle. There's still going to be a fight. Don't just lean back and think it's all autopilot. God is going to work through you to do what he calls you to do. I think another principle we can see here is that those who do evil will be repaid. We saw this with Adonai Bezek. And getting, he recognized this was just, that he'd done this to 70 people and he had it happen to him. But you know what? Even in this life, There is no perfect justice because, I mean, he only had two thumbs and two big toes to cut off and he had cut off, you know, uh, two two pair for 70 other people. And in this life, there is justice, but our ultimate justice, perfect justice, won't come in this life. It will come later on. So we see that already. So we see kind of a, a good start here for the conquest. 
Verse 8, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards the men of Judah went to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country at the Negev and in the lowlands. And Judah went out against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Erba. And they defeated Shishai and Haman and Talmai. Now there's this next section, and it talks about uh, Othniel. I'm going to skip that for now, because we'll come back to that in the third sermon, because we're going to see that Othniel is actually the first of the judges. So we'll deal with that at that time. And so it talks about his uh, conquest. And if we go on here, it, uh, verse 16, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Jephthah and devoted it to destruction. And so the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah also captured Gaza with his territory and Escalon with his territory and Elkan with his territory. And the Lord was with Judah. So things are going well. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out uh, the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Not everyone had iron yet. The chariots weren't solid iron. That would be a, a slow-moving chariot, but they probably had some iron plating on them, and they're very difficult to defeat, kind of like tanks for, for their day. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. All right, so that's kind of our first section here, and we're going to see there's, there's success here so far. We've seen some of the lessons. You may still have to fight for what the Lord gives you. Those who do evil will be repaid. And let me give one final from this section. The Lord is to be obeyed completely. This land was supposed to be conquered thoroughly. The evil were supposed to be driven out. And in the same way, when we think about our lives, that just as Israel was to conquer the land thoroughly, so every area of our life needs to be brought under submission to God. Not just partially, not just some areas of our life where evil is still allowed to reside and coexist, but completely. So, we move to the second part, and I know it's different in your notes, but we're going to start at this part at verse 21. I'm going to label this as half-hearted obedience. Israel, I'm going to leave a blank here so we can fill this out. Israel blank to completely obey God's commands. And it has here, I think, the first sign of some cracks forming, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. They were supposed to drive them out completely. And here, they did not do that. And even when this was written, the Jebusites were still with them, being that influence. Then there's another episode, verse 22. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, though the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spy saw a man coming out of the city and said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. 
and that is its name to this day. So on one hand, they drove him out, and if he went to the land of Hittites, probably hopefully beyond the border of Israel, it's still pretty close, and, and being an influence. And they kind of had this, they were kind to him, but in a way that this is different than uh, in the book of Joshua with Rahab, who it's similar, but there she becomes an Israelite. This guy keeps his culture and his, his wicked ways and just kind of moves his sinful city somewhere else. And that's a whole lot different when we just have sin move to a different aspect, a different area, than when we actually deal with it. But now if, we, if that's the beginning of cracks, we're going to see a lot of cracks here as we finish up chapter 1. Notice uh, you're going to see a specific theme that keeps happening. It says Manasseh did not, and these are names of different tribes, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Liam or its villages, or the inhabitants of Amedigo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. They were not told to, to make them into servants. They were told to drive them out. They started thinking, well, we're strong enough. We'll make these guys our servants. That's, it's even better for us. We get some, some forced labor here. Verse 29, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites live in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nehalu, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Aleb or of Axeb or of Helba or of Aphik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and inhabited in the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anash. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. And the Abernites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. The Ammonites persisted in dwelling in Mount Hears, in Ajalon, and Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph, that would be the, uh, the two tribes of um, Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Echabim, from Selah, and upward. Let me give you three applications here that we will go through quickly. They conquered, they, but they did not conquer completely. And we need to remember that mostly obeying is still disobeying. You can't say, well, I mostly obeyed God's commands. I mostly kept faithful to, to these things. Mostly obeying is still disobeying. Don't, think, don't give in to the temptation to compromise with sin. Second, don't think that you can control and manage sin for your benefit. In their disobedience, they decided it was going to be better to keep these people and, and make them into slaves and forced labor. And they thought, hey, this is a better situation. We can get some good benefit out of this. You know, we can make them do our work and do all this. 
And you know what? Supposedly we're supposed to drive them out and yeah, we were warned that they would be a bad influence on us and lead us into worshiping of idols and detestable practices that God abhors. But you know, we can control this. We got this situation in hand. Think of how many times even Christians today make that mistake. Think, I know this is not God's will, but I can control this. I can control the consequences and this is going to work out well for me. And maybe for a while it seems like it does. But that is not God's will and not his way and there will be, there will be consequences to that. You will get burned. And you notice too, I filled in the blank at top. Because originally I was going to say Israel failed to completely obey God's command. But I think the truth of it is they, they refused to fulfill God's command. It wasn't a lack of ability. It was a lack of, of their choice, their desire. Because often our I can't is really I won't. Oftentimes we say I, I can't obey this command. I can't resist this. Is it really I can't or is it I won't? I don't want to do that. You may say, I can't forgive that person. Is it really that you can't? You don't want to. That, that nursing that grudge and having that against them is something that you, you prefer than going through the, the painful process of forgiveness. I can't tell the truth about this. Really? Or is it that you, just, you don't want to face the ramifications that would be the case there? I can't resist this temptation. Well, in 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You could add other examples. I can't stay in this marriage. I can't trust God in this situation. Tim Keller wrote, it is not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessing or from worshiping God wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in his strength. And then finally, we're going to go into chapter 2 for a few verses here and see the consequences of this. And the consequences of this are self-made snares. Israel's disobedience resulted in lasting consequences. We read, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Now here's something. When it says the angel of the Lord here, this isn't just an angel. When you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord in Scripture, oftentimes, most often, it's not just an angel, it is a messenger from God, but this is, I believe, none other than the Lord himself. I believe this is the, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is taking this form and appearing to them. Because you notice, he doesn't say, the Lord brought you up from Egypt, or, or it being the Lord's covenant. He said, I 
brought you up out of Egypt. And he talks about um, his making a covenant with them. I believe this is actually Christ himself. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. And even this book of Judges in tough times, dark times, is pointing ahead towards Jesus Christ. And he says, I made a covenant with you, and now you're making covenants with these other nations around you? You can't have covenants going in, in both directions like this. Who are you going to have a covenant with? With me? Or this agreement with, with the wicked world around you? And he said, you were supposed to break down their altars, but instead you're breaking my laws. You're breaking my instructions. This was not good. And he goes on and says, so now I say I will not drive them out before you. Before there was that promise that he would go with them and be with them to drive them out, but he said, you refused. That opportunity is now gone. He says, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bachem, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They wept, but they had already disobeyed. As someone has written, it is better to be faithful now than to weep then. Choices have consequences. God treats us as being responsible for our decisions, as responsible decision makers, and our choices will have consequences. Maybe not right away, but they will. Second lesson, don't squander your opportunity to obey. Every moment is a choice to either obey God or to disobey him. Don't squander the opportunity that you have to obey. It doesn't last forever. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And don't throw away your blessing by disobedience. And in our disobedience, we set our own snares. We, we make our bed and we lie in it. And we're going to see this played out throughout the rest of the book of Judges. The consequences that they had for not driving out these people and how they were oppressed and how they were led into idolatry. And we often do the same things, whether it's with addictions or harmful habits or financial foolishness or terrible work habits, relationships, wasted opportunities. We can hit a point where it's too late humanly speaking, to change what we have done. Bottom line of all this is if you obey God, God will give you the strength to succeed. But if we disobey, our disobedience will become a snare to us. As we finish this, and we're going to be transitioning and taking the Lord's Supper together, and we're thinking too here, this is, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ coming, who would one day come and die for the sins of all who would trust in him. Notice the contrast here. The big theme of the people of, of this generation of Israel was they had unfinished work. They did not finish the task. That was their big failure. They did not complete it. But when Christ comes again after the time of Judges, when he comes as the God-man, he would not leave his work unfinished. He would do everything that was required. And at the end, when he hung on the cross, paying for our sin, he would say, it is finished. All of us are imperfect. All of us have sinned and fallen short. 
God said, be perfect as, I, as my Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. We are not perfect. Jesus Christ came and was perfect in our place. And he finished the work. And that's the only hope of salvation that we have. As we move to celebrate the Lord's Supper, let us remember that. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you so much that although, just like the Israelites, we have left work unfinished, that all falls short of the glory of God in our sin, but we thank you that when you paid the perfect and complete sacrifice for us on the cross, that you were able to say, it is finished. We praise you. Help us out of gratitude and love to obey you from our heart knowing that you will give us what we need to follow you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.